There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She did not know. It was too subtle and elusive to name. But she felt it, creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Huh. Poor Louise Millard. Even here, her captivity must be ended by a force outside herself. Like Pinky from A Day No Pigs Would Die, this tension between the psychological and the physical worlds is what turns epiphany into... Fatality. Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and this episode finds us digging into Kate Chopin's short story, The Story of an Hour. Well, we have a short story here that was first published in Vogue magazine way back in December 6th, 1894, under the title then, though, of The Dream of an Hour. That may become important later. It was reprinted in St. Louis Life in January 1895, about a month later. Most of us know the famous work, and if you'd like, check out both a copy of the story and a reading of it in our episode 1.1, Supplement to this episode, you know how the story goes. Louise Millard, she receives word that her husband has died in a train wreck. Beside herself, she rushes into her bedroom. She locks the door. Her sister begs her to emerge, but all the while she's staring out the window and she's thinking for once in her married life that she is finally and absolutely free. Free to live for herself. At last, She steps out and walks proudly, victoriously down the staircase, just as the door opens and her husband appears. He'd missed the train, was alive after all, and Louise, suffering from a weak heart, dies on the spot. The doctors infamously claim that she died of a, quote, joy that kills. A terrifying and tragic little twist ending. It's been a great story to place in school books for generations It's brief, easy to read, a fun and ironic surprise. We nod our heads, say, well, that was fun, but really dark. And then we move on to Edgar Allan Poe or maybe an O. Henry story next. Moving on quickly past Chopin's works was a tradition in her lifetime, too. Many of her stories, written mostly to raise money in order to raise her children, were simple character sketches of the local Creole people of the American South. But others, like this gem, made it into the even-then scandalous Vogue magazine. But male editors passed over her works frequently. Feeling beaten down after her now-famous novel The Awakening, from 1899, far too controversial for male publishers, often rejected afterwards, Chopin died without fame. It wasn't until the 1960s that she was rediscovered by a Norwegian scholar, Per Sejersted, who made her famous by republishing and writing about her works. Now, that was the advent of the 1970s, the height of the sexual revolution, and Kate Chopin, 
became a star, has been with us ever since. Historian Emily Toth says that the main question Chopin poses in her literature is, who has the right to tell a woman what to do, to think, to be? In this simple short story, however, I believe Chopin's answer may not be quite so direct. Let's find out. I read what I want. Theorist Louise Rosenblatt said that meaning is an aesthetic transaction with the text. She said that if we read efferently, we're just gaining information. If we read aesthetically, we are experiencing the text, the words, the sounds, etc. Now, what does all that mean? They're fancy words, but basically, there isn't just one way to read. Now, we can read and study texts in order to get more knowledge. Physics books, essays which argue economics policies, restaurant menus. We read, we move on. Or, we can read for the experience of the ideas the sounds, the emotions, the pleasure. The skills and approach to these two acts are different. There's some overlap, perhaps. But we can read a story or a poem for just its events, the words printed on the page, and report back what happened, objectively, correctly, factually. But this, of course, kind of misses the point. We enjoy a story because of how those events are arranged to make it suspenseful or curious, how a description might capture our attention or alter our mood, how a character speaks to us in some way that we call you know, significant. Some writers are better at doing this than others. In general, though, what we talk about in discussing an aesthetic reading isn't just events, but meaning. It isn't objective, but at least partially subjective, you know, our interpretation, isn't correct, but somewhat personal, isn't fact, but persuasive or compelling opinion. Now, our discussion of this idea, which seems pretty obvious to begin, will probably get more complicated as we move forward. But by and large, when we read anything we call art, we are expected to read aesthetically for a meaning which is not plainly demonstrated. The flower in a William Blake poem will be understood differently from one in a botany book. But the flower in a William Blake poem is also going to be understood differently from the flower in a Stephen King novel. Probably. Efferently, informationally, literally, they are all the same flowers. Aesthetically, will take a little bit more work. And that's what we're about here. But how we do this is not so clear-cut. It's not random. But there are many different ways, different paths perhaps, to find aesthetic meanings. My goal here with this story of an hour is not to give you the meaning, but to offer you some of these paths. Some paths will lead us to similar ideas. Others will take us in very different directions. You may like some of the paths we take, hate others, think we're lost on some. Let me give you a couple of examples of questions we might ask of this story that can definitely not be answered by an informational reading. 
Does Louise Millard rescue herself from her husband's influence? Does the narrator of the story think Louise has become wise or foolish? Is Louise's death tragic or is it a victory? Now, the truth is, I'm not really fond of these questions because they offer a yes or no sort of choice. Better ones might be more open, allowing readers to create interpretations that I don't offer in the question itself. Like, what is responsible for the health of their marriage? What does it mean to say Louise has, quote, a heart trouble? Why hasn't Louise allowed herself to think of freedom before? To what extent must relationships compromise freedom? If all we do is read art for its literal meaning, yo, you know, that's a painting of a tree, there seems little point in reading it. If we read it aesthetically, art can become important to us, for all of us, but also personally. Historicism? This is why I will rarely make a lot of time for biography or history in our readings. Certainly, we can do this. There are a ton of websites and podcasts out there that will tell you all about Chopin's life. The publishing of her stories, things like that. Sites like Sparknotes, Cengage, Schmoop, others are all pretty predictable in what they tell us. But there's something interesting about those sites, too. They give us informational articles about aesthetic readings. Now, let's make sure we understand this. When we do not feel comfortable with our own subjective, personal, some might say deep interpretations, some readers will go to a website to see what the story really means. And those sites will tell us, I guess. I'm not saying to never use resources like these, but I am suggesting that doing so can mean that we are not getting better at aesthetic reading. I don't personally care a lot if you can tell me that the open window in the story is a symbol of Louise's potential escape. Not if you read it informationally on some website. But for every one of you listening right now, I do personally care whether you can offer me an interpretation or opinion on the importance of escape, or on how that window's description made you feel, or on how what Louise feels is still important for anyone feeling suffocated by their world. Now, I say all this in a segment called Historicism, so I'm about to turn right around and tell you that sometimes looking into history can offer some insights into a story or a poem. Well, of course it can. For instance, if we talk about train wrecks for a second, it might be important. We have a train wreck that's killed uh, Louise's husband, but in 1855, Chopin's father died in a train accident when she was five, and her mother became a wealthy widow as a result. Another large crash in 1888 much closer to the date of the story, demonstrates how lists of the dead are are reported. Another interesting historical connection, though, is how this story differs from that life event. Real life might have been a little too radical. Suppose that Louise's husband dies and doesn't come back, and Louise goes on to live the life of a wealthy widow. <laughs> 
Chopin critic Emily Toth, she's written a couple of biographies about Kate Chopin, says in, in her book Unveiling Kate Chopin that she had to disguise reality. She had to have her heroine die. A story in which an unhappy wife is suddenly widowed, becomes rich, and lives happily ever after? That would have been much too radical, far too threatening in the 1890s. There were limits to what editors would publish and what audiences would accept. So what Kate Chopin did was publish a lot more conventional social stories, and that allowed her perhaps to be a little more daring later, but not so daring as to allow her heroine to survive as a wealthy widow. That would never get published. We can look into the history of Kate Chopin's own marriage, and we find that all evidence suggests that she had a very happy one. And a few weeks after starting this story, she wrote in her diary, quote, If it were possible for my husband and my mother to come back to earth, I feel that I would unhesitatingly give up everything that has come into my life since they left it and join my existence again with theirs even though I would have to forget the past ten years of my growth. All this is to say is that our author, like all authors, is a complex, conflicted person. And I want to draw a caution to say maybe we should be careful about making quick and handy, neat and tidy parallels between a short story and the author's life. Sometimes we can be enlightened, Sometimes we can be confused. That said, sometimes when we look into history, we can discover something about the publishing of the story that raises new questions still. Back in the day. Okay, so I'd like to talk about a couple of we'll call them editorial changes that have been made in the story of an hour. Now, there's a couple of reasons why editorial changes might be made to a publication of a short story or poem. And we're going to talk about the impact of those, two which might actually be significant for the meaning of Kate Chopin's story. An editor may make a change because of spatial considerations. Back in the old days, newspapers had a limit to how big a story or an article could be on a page. And so they make some choices that are editorial in order to fit the publication requirements, the size of the space that's allowed. Other editors believe they have a better insight into style Perhaps the writer does. Sometimes they do. And they make a change editorially to a story in order to strengthen it. Sometimes there's an accidental change. And we didn't mean it. We just misread something. We left out a word or added a word or something like that. Sometimes the change has an ulterior motive. In the story of an hour, let's look at two changes that have been made and what they might represent. The first comes about halfway through the story. Louise Millard is sitting at the window and she's got her arms outstretched and she's thinking about all the things that are going to happen for her and she's got her arms spread wide at the window. And then this line comes, There would be no one to live for during those coming years. She would live for herself. 
Now, right away, it's pretty clear what that meaning's about. She does, doesn't have to dedicate her life to someone else, as women often do, either to their children, their husbands, you know, their, fam- their broader families, that they live for someone, that their role is to nurture, to care for. Um, and they have that responsibility that's traditionally carried in Chopin's time. There would be no one to live for. During those coming years, Revelation, she will live for herself And the affirmation is she has an opportunity to choose her own ego, to choose herself as an independent person to live for. What a concept. She no longer has a a social obligation or a traditional obligation to sacrifice or give up, surrender her life to someone else. But that's not the only version of that sentence. That's how it was published in Vogue in 1894. But in 1895, when the story was reprinted, it was reprinted in the St. Louis Life and edited by Sue Moore. Now, Moore supposedly is one of Chopin's friends. And when Moore takes the clipping of the Vogue story and she gives it to the St. Louis Life version, she handwrites two changes. We assume it's her hand that did it. And she changes that sentence to read this way. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. She would live for herself. We just added a word. We inserted the word her. Here it is again. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. She would live for herself. This is a change, supposedly a change that Chopin wanted. Notice what the meaning might be. No one to live for her during those coming years, as if her life has been usurped, not as a responsibility as a caregiver, not as a responsibility to husband or children, but someone else has been living her life for her, choosing her pastimes, her behaviors, her habitudes, her likes and dislikes, choosing how to value it. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. Now... She's going to live for herself. And there's a liberation uh, motif, which is quite a bit stronger than merely the idea of, I am going to uh, not have any responsibilities. What we don't know is which one of these Chopin really wanted. We presume she wanted the her, or at least I do, because it was handwritten as a change. Why was it left out? In the original, was it because the author had a different idea in mind? She made the change like a second draft? It could be. Could it be that an editorial change was made without her permission? Maybe it was an accident? Either way, we're left with two slightly different readings. And I can hear you say, okay, that's not a big deal. I mean, they're both liberations. They're both freedoms from something. And if they're freedoms from something, then why should we worry over much about this? We have a woman who's kept, she's, she's in a state of captivity from some patriarchal power. Why do we care exactly what subtlety uh, difference it makes? Not a big deal. Perhaps not. But I did say there are two changes I want to talk about. The second one is in the title itself. The story is called The Story of an Hour, but originally... It was printed as the dream of an hour 
in both original prints. Only later did the scholar Sayerstead make a change into the story of an hour. Now, what difference does that make? Let's think about that for a moment. The title, The Story of an Hour, story, simply identifies the genre that we're in. We're about to tell you a story. It's a narrative. It's a short one. But it is a story that you will become familiar with. It, you'll read it for its characters and its plot, and that's what it is. The dream of an hour says something far more focused about its content. In a story, we read for what happens, beginning, middle, and end. And we're excited by the end because that's the climax or the conclusion, or in this case, the twist of a story. The dream of an hour pushes the focus somewhere else, doesn't it? It suggests that, you know, the story is going on there, but I really want you to look at the dream that Louise Millard has. It's a waking dream. It's an illusion. It's not real. This idea that she could be free, body and soul free. It's a dream. It's a feverish delusion. And why wouldn't it be? For any woman living in this condition is only able to dream. There is no reality where the freedom that Louise Millard is imagining exists. She didn't even need to have her husband, perhaps, come home alive to discover this. It is still and equally a dream. Dream on, sister. There will be no freedom for you or for any women in this culture. I'm going to get to that in some more detail uh, in a moment. But notice what the change is made. Now, this change was made without the author's permission. This was made editorially by Sayerstead after Chopin's death. The dream of an hour is erased, and we sit, instead say, let's not talk about this as so cruel a focus, that this is merely a dream. Let's give us the opportunity. This is a story, and it's a tragic story, but a story nonetheless. If Sayerstead did this in the 1970s, we do not want to send a message to the second-wave feminist movement of the 1970s that there is nothing for you in reality. This is not a dream. There is a possibility for a free and open life. And so the change is made, perhaps, dream becomes story, much less a statement and just more an announcement of genre. We focus on the notion of the tragedy of the ironic ending, and we call it a day. Now, these two changes suggest a larger question, and it's one that we're going to be wrestling with, I feel, a whole lot as we go through some of this literature. What version is the true version, the real version what do we make of the meaning of a story when the story or the poem has changed over time? Do we go with the first draft, the second draft, the final draft, the first published draft, the draft is reseen by the writer as it's been edited by someone else, the draft that's been expanded into the full director's cut? Which version is the version that we take meaning from? And what do we do with the meaning? Am I wrong if I read the story of an hour and miss the discussion of the dream and what statement that might make? 
Am I wrong if I read the dream of an hour and someone says, well, it was never published, well, it wasn't printed that way, or everyone understands it to be the story of an hour. In fact, Chisnell named the episode story of an hour. If he was so hot over this idea that it was going to be the original dream of an hour, why did he name it that way? Is it because I'm trying to cater to people who know the story more popularly? We have a question about which text do we build meaning from? Modernism. So, is this a story of Louise Millard discovering some personal ambition for freedom, or is it some kind of a selfish delusion that she suffers from? Should we understand her desire as humble or immature and egotistical? I don't want us to think of literature in terms of an either-or. I mean, sometimes an author will seem to offer an A or B choice, and very often critics will look at a piece of literature and say it is A and not B. That either-or, that two-choice approach always strikes me as problematic. I think some of the greatest literature somehow slides between those two. We need to consider subtext, that aesthetic reading I was talking about earlier, what happens beneath the words. Now, some people read literature and they say, oh, it's really too hard. You see there's all these puzzles or secret codes and things that you're trying to draw up from underneath that say hidden messages, and that's all nonsense. The idea is there. It's just requires a little more reading on our part than less reading. It's present. It's not hidden. Why would an author hide a meaning? The author wants the meaning to be found. But there are some meanings that are not simply the words on a page. They're more complex. So as one of the rules of approaching literature is be cautious when someone offers you just A or B, either or. I mean, only an amateur writer would offer a character that has a single motivation, a two-dimensionality. Louise Millard has more complexity, and we will find it in that subtext, in the connotations of diction and image. This is what the modernist critic does, the one who focuses on the text itself. Let's see what we find. First, we need to address the big irony in the room. The joy that kills. This is one of the more famous lines that Chopin has written in all of her works, and it's easy to see this as irony, the O. Henry-like twist, the twist at the end that says, oh my gosh, not only is she dead, not only has her husband still alive, and she died as a shock of it, but that nobody understands why she died. They think she died because she was happy that her husband was there. I want to talk about this joy that kills in terms of irony, but maybe more than one level of irony. On the surface, reading it literally, we get the idea that she is so overjoyed that her physical heart couldn't take it. She dies from excitement. Now, you and I know that's not true. It's not really 
joy to find her husband alive. They misread it. Her sister Josephine, Bentley, her husband, the doctors, they misunderstood. What's interesting about our understanding of the death is that we automatically understand the physical heart to also mean the emotional heart. That it wasn't joy to find her husband alive. In fact, she's heartbroken to find her husband alive. And that this is an emotional, psychic, mental break when she discovers that he is alive. I want to suggest that it can go further, though. Maybe it is her delusional joy of freedom that's ruptured and kills her. She might be just as deluded as the others in the house. When her delusion, her error in thinking, is brought to light, she realizes how foolish she is. That's what kills her. I mean, did we really think that this story was going to end with her living out her life and happiness? When you started reading it, and you reached the window, and she's thinking about freedom, did you say, wow, that's a nice twist. She's going to live out her life as a fairy princess. No, no, no. You and I both knew something was going to happen. Remember what Emily Toth said, Chopin couldn't let her heroine live. So either we are left with one of two things. One, we are smarter than Louise. We know she's fooling herself, and that happiness cannot be hers. She is foolish. But we are also smarter than society that doesn't see its own wickedness in that case. Or two, we are smarter than Louise, and we see the tragedy as a big accusatory finger pointed at society that won't let her live her life. But, of course, we are smarter than society that doesn't understand her. Which one is it? And I want to make room for the idea that it could be both. We are smarter than Louise. We see more than she does. But we're also smarter than the society of her times that says, oh, this captivity is tragic. We see that the larger institution of marriage is keeping women trapped, or at least some women. But we also see that a woman is foolish to expect to live in a society like that freely. We don't have to choose a yes or a no, an A or a B when we interpret. We can find a lot of levels. We can find that both meanings happen at the same time. Now, why am I suggesting that Louise is foolish? You may be saying, no, you've gone too far. I, yes, she may be a little deluded that she thinks she can live on her own, but it's not that awful to expect freedom from society. I'm not disagreeing. But let's ask this question. Is there any text, anything in the story, that demands that the narrator agrees with Louise Millard? Look at how the marriage is characterized. Who describes it? Louise Millard does. Look at how freedom is described. Who describes it? Louise Millard does. Look at the characterization of her husband. Who describes him? Louise Millard does. Well, almost completely. Who describes her marriage as a powerful will bending hers in that blind persistence with which men and women believe they have a right to impose a private will? Louise Millard. Who describes her husband's face except 
as a face that had never looked save with love upon her. Louise Mallard does. In every case, the characterization of her husband, of her marriage, of her relationship, of her freedom, is hers alone. The narrator sits kind of in the background watching her think these things. So the ideas of her and her captivity are hers. Outside the world, the doctors, her family, they describe her as having, quote, a heart trouble. So whose failure is it to love here? Now it's gotten interesting. It isn't the husband's failure to love. It isn't the husband's failure to treat her well. It is her failure to love, to find that joy in the relationship. Now, I'm not trying to point a finger back at Louise. I'm simply suggesting that maybe this is a little more complicated than we imagined. She has a heart trouble, not just a physical one. She doesn't know how to unpack herself emotionally. She doesn't know how to reach out to others emotionally. The first thing she does when she hears of her husband's death is run and lock herself into a room, not reach out to her sister, not reach out to her friends. There's more that Chopin offers us. It is at that moment that Louise Millard undertakes, quote, a suspension of intelligent thought. What? Yeah, if we're not careful, we're going to skip right over that reading. A suspension of intelligent thought. She stops thinking. Maybe we have a woman who has fooled herself. Later on, when she's thinking of herself as victory, you know, the goddess Nike coming down the steps and declaring victory, I am free. We also have a sentence that goes like this. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes. And she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. Ah, now that's not Louise Millard characterizing it. That's the narrator. This is not Louise Millard describing herself as feverish and being unwitting. This is the narrator saying, look at this woman. She's out of her mind right now. She is unwitting. She doesn't understand it. She isn't the goddess of victory. She's carrying herself like a goddess of victory, she thinks. And she is feverish, deluded. Finally, I want to go back to a comment I made earlier about the title of the story. What does it mean if this story were called The Dream of an Hour? It's not real. This is, again, a delusion, a false hope. So there is another irony level here, and that is that our Louise herself is fooled. She has a limited understanding of the world, and that limited understanding she allows free reign. She believes a romantic idea that she will somehow come out of this as a free and independent woman, when really she should know better. The Close Analysis To explore this idea a little further, I'd like to go into a section of the short story that 
we've already heard a little bit about. I'm going to come back to it and play with it a little bit. This is a close analysis of a passage. A close analysis basically means I'm going to zoom in on some of the text and really look at it specifically in depth. It's a technique that's common to a lot of teachers, literary critics, and others, but it can offer us some insight into how a writer uses language and what we can learn from that language if we slow down just a little bit to see what's going on. It's the passage that you've heard at the beginning of this episode. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She did not know. It was too subtle and elusive to name, but she felt it creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will, as powerless as her two white slender hands would have been. Now, we learn a lot about this idea. We know what's coming. It's this idea of being free. She's going to allow it to bubble up and well out of her. Free, free, free. But right now, we're just getting the idea of it from her. So, let's make a couple of observations. First, whatever this feeling is, this freedom feeling, it's from outside of her. It's an it, a thing that she's afraid of. But she felt it. She was recognizing this thing, and she's afraid of it. Louise has not been harboring resentment and suppressing her captive rage all this time. She's not a woman that's been walking through her marriage going, Oh, I can't stand this. This is awful. It's an idea that's coming from out there somewhere, and it's coming in here. At least, that's how she's thinking about it. So what is this outside presence? Is it outside of her, or just metaphorically outside of her conscious thought? But it is connected to these alive spring images. The trees, the wind, the birds, the calling of the salesperson outside, which by contrast suggests a great deal about how she understands her own life. If all the spring life outdoors where this idea of freedom lives comes in to her life, it's her life that she starts to recognize, or perhaps has always known, is contained, limited, dead even. Does she dare allow herself to let it in? Notice in this passage how forceful it is, this will to freedom. It's even nature-like, natural. It cannot be denied. She was striving to beat it back with her will, <laughs> but there isn't much power for her to do that. She is literally powerless. Also, finally, she was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her. She recognizes it. She's known it before, literally recognized to know again. She may have once understood this about herself, eh, perhaps when she was single, but had forgotten it. Myself, I think of those childhood moments she must surely have had, that we have all had, when neither parent nor partner was present to reduce our freedom to absorb, to breathe, to experience. Oh, yes, we love them. But 
Still, whatever this idea is, if she accepts it, and she can't help but do so, it is foolish. And this is why this small suggestion, this is the moment of change right here. This, then, may be the moment of tragedy. Not her death on the staircase, but her moment here at the window where she actually experiences these ideas that cannot be reconciled. A freedom promised by nature, a society, and her own life, which doesn't dare let them in. So we talk about this idea as a spiritual liberation that she's feeling mirrored to a physical or sensual imagery of the window outdoors and the beautiful nature imagery that's there. Let's talk a moment about the role of nature. Remember, it is something which is rising from the outside world of nature. It's a mysterious force of some kind. But where is it not coming from? It is not coming from society, its traditions, its history, its male-dominated discourse. We'll talk about that later. Personal dreams, creative ideas. Even if we think that the it, the freedom, is an outside, or rather an outside her conscious thinking, it becomes a romantic dream which cannot be realized. Like Jay Gatsby's in the Fitzgerald novel, The Great Gatsby, they each believe in something that is impossible to have because it does not exist in this world. It's almost like a romantic idea. And I mean that in the terms of romanticism, this idea that nature is gorgeous, the human emotion and spirit need to be free and unfettered, completely unbound. And yet we know the society itself does nothing but restrict and confine and chain. The only difference is that in the 19th century, the Romantic era, Romantic poets found the optimism often to talk about this free and unfettered existence of emotional joy. It was the 20th century or the Industrial Age, the modern era, where we began to find literature and thinkers who said, there's no room for this. The imagination will get run over by a freight train. And (laughs) almost literally... That's what happens here. A few Greeks. What's the tragedy in a story like this? A lot of thinkers about this story will say something like, well, the tragedy is that her husband's still alive and she dies. Well, that's sad. But is it tragedy, really? Is the tragedy that she wasn't understood? Is the tragedy that she had just discovered joy, or thought she had, but finds that she hasn't? To get at that, let's see if we can understand what tragedy actually is. And we're going to spend a moment with this. We go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, Aristotle, who talked about tragedos, uh, the idea of tragedy and what it required. Aristotle believed that tragedos gave readers or viewers of plays, in his case, a sense of catharsis, a release. We like watching or reading about sad things because it makes us 
feel vindicated that, yes, this is what the world is like. Yes, that's justice. Yes, the world will run over us. We identify with it. And then we feel purged in some way. But for Aristotle, not every death is tragedy. Some deaths are justice. Some deaths are pathetic. Some are just sad. The thing that makes it tragic is a moral ambiguity in our tragic victim. Our tragic hero must be neither a villain nor a virtuous person, but a character somewhere between those two. If the villain dies, we say, well, he deserved it, so that's not a tragedy. If the perfectly virtuous man dies, well, we make them a martyr, or we say, well, that's that's really sad. The tragedy happens when you and I, as readers, we can identify we are neither villain nor virtuous. We're looking for someone who isn't perfectly good and whose failure doesn't come by some depravity or sin, but it happens because of some error or frailty. We say to ourselves as readers, I'm, look, I'm not perfect, so I'm not that saint or king that died over there in that play, and I'm not a villain, so it's not my sin or my vice that does it, but we're all human. We make mistakes. It is the tragedy that comes by error, by frailty, what the Greeks called hamartia, the idea that it is our humanity which creates our failures, the mistakes we make. Does Louise Millard have a flaw? She sure does. If it's only the external events that harm our character, that can't be the thing to bring about her downfall. Something with her, something within her, has to do it. Are we talking about the delusion, the feverish, unwitting idea of victory? Is this Louise Hamartia that creates the tragedy in this story? Feminism. I have to say that this literary theory of feminism is enormous. It is so large an area of scholarship that there's not a chance we're going to be able to scrape into all of it, even remotely. But I want to offer us a taste of how we might approach this story through a feminist lens. And in this case, it's a pretty straightforward one because this story lends itself so easily to our thinking about it in this way. What we see with the loss of Louise Millard is one part of a much larger scene of violence against women. We appreciate this story because it seems to us one incident. It mirrors the experience of so many people. We nod our head and say, yes, yes, that's how that works. It's part of a much larger literary genre which normalizes violence against women. I'm not saying that Kate Chopin is against feminism, quite the opposite. I'm saying that she recognizes, too, that there's so much normalization of the restrictions on women, but that she finds, at least in this story, so few ways to escape it. I'd like to, in this particular case, take the word violence, this definition of violence, and I want to include not only physical and emotional abuse, 
but just for the sake of our argument and interpretation here, include psychological manipulation and destruction. If I can reduce the idea of self, if I can do damage to the idea of possible, of one's hopes and ambitions, that also is an act of violence. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine, and we can have that argument out at some much larger venue than this. But for now, I'm going to be using that word to describe this act upon Louise Millard. If we can accept that for the moment, then I can ask some questions that follow. How do the different genders respond when they are released to free action, to do as they please? Do we see in this story the same possibilities? Even the husband's friend Richards is able to move around into the culture. But for Josephine and Louise, the sisters, they are always in the house. Neither of them are released to free action, though Louise for a moment believes it's possible. Brentley and Richards are free to wander the world as they will. It's a dangerous place, but they have the freedom to do that. When we see a story like this, obviously we have to take action contrary to what the literature does. We don't want this story repeated. So to some extent, it's a call to action. Exactly what is harder to identify. Certainly, we don't want to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it sucks to be a woman, I guess, but maybe things are getting a little better, and then leave it at that. Instead, we have an opportunity with a story like this to see what a call to action might look like. And we might begin by ending the silence of violence against women. We shouldn't allow it to be normalized nor should we shrug our shoulders in any excuse about how it occurs. Put back in my other definition, we shouldn't allow the psychological manipulation to continue, and we must end the silence of this when it occurs against women. And suddenly you have all kinds of more recent political movements which are attempting to do exactly that. The hashtag MeToo movement is precisely that. Note how the silence of the psychological manipulation works in Chopin's story. Not only is it not articulated, this psychological manipulation, not only is it not spoken, it dare not be spoken, even whispered, except in the darkness of a single room that's been locked, and Louise is in it, thinking to herself, even not daring to think to herself, about this manipulation. She is so scared at the possibility that she could speak of this manipulation out loud, that she could break this silence, that she locks herself in the room, and then, even then only whispers the idea. Free, free, free. And notice it's free, body and soul. Free. Even when she opens the door to her sister and comes down the stairs, 
she doesn't articulate it. She never speaks a word to anyone in the story. Now, I'm not suggesting that Louise is mute in her life. I'm saying Chopin in the story never lets Louise say a word to anyone. It's on us to see into her about how this silence works on women. So certainly what we're seeing is an assertion in the story against traditional marriage, against captivity. But the reversal of this idea that women should be kept in a small, secluded, cloistered space like a home or a bedroom is also problematic because there they might think for themselves, meditate upon their condition. That is also not permitted. Stay in the house, but don't think over hard or over long about why you're staying in the house. Louise Millard has never given herself an opportunity to think that way, much like the protagonist in Gilman's Yellow Wallpaper. You must stay at home, but you must not write. You must not journal. You must not take time thinking. Women, in this case, are compelled, therefore, to define themselves in terms of the expectations and interests of the men. They can't define themselves for themselves. Is this story, therefore, merely a hate attack upon men? No. Remember, we've already determined that Louise, at some level, is misunderstanding her own relationship. Her husband loves her. But she says this in the story, What could love the unsolved mystery count for in the face of this possession of self-assertion which she suddenly recognized as the strongest impulse of her being. Well, that's quite a sentence. Love is unimportant in the face of this impulse of freedom, this literal possession of self-assertion. We know this at some level to be foolish, feverish, deluded. In this story, Louise fortunately, does not have children. Because wouldn't she be compelled to deal with them? You can't be totally free then. She will have the finances and her home to deal with. She can't be totally free then. Now, Chopin does and will wrestle with these dependencies in her other works, especially the novel, The Awakening. Love, family, tradition, marriage, obligation. But there's the question. Must all that be set aside for some idealized, romanticized idea of freedom? How could it be? Here's the thing about the feminist interpretation that's important at this moment. For those of us who think of feminism as saying simply, women have to be free and men are hateful, you can see that in the story. But it's these harder questions of the dependencies of idealized freedom, of possessions of self-assertion, of psychological manipulation and silences, of a definition of violence. These questions get tougher, but they're all hovering right here in the text for us to wrestle with. Freud and Friends So all of the real drama of the story happens in that bedroom, in that chair, in Louise's mind, in her psychology. And it's the psychological damage that she's doing to herself and has been done to her that is at question here. 
I'd like to point out that it seems in this story that freedom is a psychological binary, an either-or proposition, and you know what I think about that already. She seems to be caught up in something. She's trapped by something. What she wants is a freedom from something. And I'm curious about that freedom from idea. Is that how freedom works? That freedom is something that exists because we break from something else? To some extent, it has to be. Look, I... My ego, I, who I am, is developed through an external other, who I am not. I know who I am partially because I'm different from all these other folks. And that's an an initial psychological move to create identity. I look for something which is not me. And then I say, good, now I know who I am because I'm not them. It is my language of myself through my relationship to the other. It makes it a kind of a self-alienating sort of thing. I am different from the rest of the world. I think a lot of us see ourselves that way. Somehow the world is doing its own thing and we're sitting kind of on the sidelines, eh, participating every now and then. But we really don't connect. And we wonder, why is it that I, I don't feel totally connected to what they're doing over there? That's because the I, in order to call myself an I... I have to be different from. I have to be free from. Louise, like all of us, forms her ideal self from this idea. The I that stands alone, stands apart, and says, I am this person in the world, and I am different from. So if we look at the last line of the short story, which joy is it that kills? A joy of love, which the doctors understand, is a connection to the world, a joy from love and from connections is that separation, one that alienates me from the world. Is that really the ideal freedom, the one that disconnects me? Is that autonomy, what we really want? Is that part of the delusion that Louise believes? Not only can't she have freedom, she probably shouldn't want it. Not completely. That because we've expressed freedom as an either-or, either you are connected to the world or you're not, because Louise appears to have done that, body and soul free, because she seems to have done it, that idealized, extreme idea of freedom cannot be had. A person who makes this error has an inclination to divide the world into two opposing forces and to ignore or deny the existence of any middle ground. There is a psychological binary of freedom, which is right now destroying her, because she can't see anything except captivity on one end and freedom on the other. What we need is something else, something in between. As Jacques Lacan said, fiction has the structure of truth. Somewhere in this questioning that Louise has been doing is a question all of us have. How do we be free? And do we dare try to explain it to someone else without hurting them? Sociological Theory 
Like feminism and like psychological theory, sociological literary theory is a huge area of scholarship, but sociological theory asks questions about the larger social rituals that we participate in. I'm going to ask a question then. Is Brentley Mallard's death, well, supposed death, is Brentley Mallard's death a personal liberation for Louise, or is it a public loss? What an interesting idea. We see it through her experience only. Now, we know that Richards and Josephine are both concerned for her, but they are also focused on her. Brentley Mallard is apparently a fairly successful businessman. He's riding trains around, and perhaps his death is significant to others. In that light, is Louise unjust in wishing such harm on others for merely her own personal liberation? Certainly there's a degree of horror in her idea. She recognizes it too when she locks herself in the bedroom in order to experience it because she doesn't dare allow it out in public. You're supposed to be grieving, not celebrating. Is Louise's liberation worth the death of Brentley Mallard? Is her psychological captivity worth the death of her husband? What privilege does she have in receiving the news as she does? She doesn't hear about it through the newspaper or through a rumor or anything like that. News is brought to her, so she need not leave her comfortable home. She has a space, a private space, where she may lock herself up and think about it. She's coming from a place of privilege, made possible by her husband, and she's able to receive the news of his death in a way which allows her comfort to meditate and think upon the loss and what it means for her. What real public oppression is she suffering? What would happen if she were poor? What would happen if her sister wasn't there for her because her sister was working? It seems at some level that Louise has the opportunity to think and reflect upon her own captivity in a way that many others may not be able to. And that itself is an interesting examination of the problem of freedom and tragedy. Structuralism and Semiotics Let's talk about inside and outside thoughts. We might call them intentional and extensional thinking. One behaves intentionally, has inside thoughts, when they respond to our maps of the world. Feelings, imaginings, visualizations, our attitudes, our preconceptions. When we think about those and we respond to the world, we're thinking intentionally. Problem comes when we take our intentional thinking, our feelings and imagination, and we place them onto the outside world, the objects, the people, the relationships, and things like that. In other words, when we think extensionally, we have a good sense of what the outside world is, and we respond to it as it is. We treat the world as the world. When we're intentional, we can sometimes treat the world as we want it to seem. When we map the world according to our own desires, our own imagination, the trouble comes when that map is an inadequate representation of the territory. Louise is misreading everything in terms of her own desire. She remaps and mismaps the world. That's what causes 
some of these problems for her. Her husband's death forces her to reconcile her inside ideas and outside world, and it's something that comes together in that room. She had come to accept the workings and rules of the outside world. That might have been sad, but she had come to expect it and learn how to respond to it. But then she allowed her inside thoughts, her inside ideas of freedom to take hold as well. Her death is the result of the complications of bringing both halves of these together, seeing the outside world mismatched to the inside world. Louise dared to allow her imagination, her unreasonable idea, to become a expectation of the outside world to meet her. Some people have come to suggest that the narrator of the story of an hour is unreliable, that we can't trust the narrator, and to some degree I understand that accusation. Why not tell us that Bentley doesn't die? The narrator knows from beginning to end what happens, but suppose the story went this way. The news came that there was a train wreck and that Bentley Millard was on the train, dead. Of course he wasn't. He wasn't on the train at all. He didn't know there was an accident. He just went about his business. But everyone else heard that he was on the train. The narrator doesn't tell us all that. The narrator could have, but doesn't. If the narrator is omniscient, in other words, can get into people's heads and can see the things and can see everything, and the narrator does know, why leave out that detail that Bentley doesn't die? That seems cruel to the reader in order to make a quick little twist ending. I think there are two reasons to answer that. One is that we want to understand Louise and her experience. And two, something we'll describe as an hourglass structure of the story. I want to talk about how the story is built. Imagine this in terms of outside and inside again. We start at the most extreme outside. We are outside in the world where Richards is running in to let everyone in the household know about Bentley's death. Then we get into the house where the news is given to Louise. And then we move in a little tighter into a small room where Louise locks herself and then we get in tighter still, we get into Louise's mind. And then we start to broaden out to the chamber outside her door and the staircase leading down. And then we have the door to the outside world again that her husband passes through. So what we have is a story structure that begins broadly in the outside, narrows in all the way into Louise's mind right at the center of the story, and then broadens out again to the outside world. Our narrator also has a change in omniscience through that same structure. The narrator seems to know everything about the world when the camera lens is broad and we're seeing the whole story. And then as we move in, we get into Louise's mind only at the center of the story, not everyone else's. And then when we broaden out, the narrator knows everything again. Obviously, the narrator is sitting outside the story because after Louise's death, the narrator is still talking. Chopin builds the story in really this extraordinary way. So small and tight is it, and yet it's created to allow us slowly to ease our way into a space that Louise has that even Louise isn't fully aware of. And then as we emerge and bring that understanding out into the world, we experience the tragedy along with her. Find out how dangerous it is. Neo Marxism. 
I've already alluded to the idea that Louise Millard is a woman of privilege. She's certainly someone of one of the upper class of her area. She has money, or she has access to money. She has a husband who's a businessman, seems to be doing well for himself. She has people who care about her. She has a home, all places of safety. And it is, as I suggested earlier, an opportunity for her to think and reflect something that maybe others don't have. This idea, though, of a kept woman, of indolence, of inactivity, is a trap of bourgeois society for bourgeois society. Put another way, rich people trap themselves in their own money. This idea of a woman having the right and privilege, I use right in quotations, having the right and privilege to not work, to not have activities that are practical, useful, purposeful, meaningful, is also an act of the rich. This is why I'm drawn to a phrase you may have heard before, the bird in a gilded cage. This is an image that comes up in lots of literature, but the song Bird in a Gilded Cage itself is unique to this particular moment. I want to play it for you here, but let's focus on a couple of the lyrics before we get into it. But she married for wealth, not for love, he cried, though she lives in a mansion grand. She's only a bird in a gilded cage, a beautiful sight to see. You may think she's happy and free from care. She's not, though she seems to be. Tis sad when you think of her wasted life, for youth cannot mate with age. And her beauty was sold for an old man's gold. She's a bird in a gilded cage. We don't know how old Brentley Mallard is, but it hardly matters. The idea of this metaphor fits at some level. I don't doubt that Louise Millard is beautiful, at least in that she's somewhat healthy and clean, and the biggest health concern she has is a heart trouble. So here's the song, A Bird in a Gilded Cage, sung by Virginia O'Brien. She's only a bird in a gilded cage, a beautiful sight to see. And her beauty was sold for an old man's gold. She's a bird in a gilded cage. She's only a bird. She's only a bird in a gilded cage. A beautiful sight, a beautiful sight, a beautiful sight, a beautiful sight to see. I said a beautiful sight to see. You may think that she's happy and free from all care. She's not, though she seems to be, to be, to be, to be. Tis sad, tis sad, tis sad when you think of her wasted life. Or you cannot mate with age And her beauty was sold For a big, fat hunk of gold And she now resides in a golden cage 
Too bad, too bad, too bad, too sad, too sad, too sad when you think of her wasted life. For you cannot mate with age, and her beauty was sold. Her beauty was sold to a man with a beard for his doggone gold. I wonder where she found him. She's just a bird in a gilded cage, hep, hep. She sold her soul for an old man's gold, hep, hep. She found that you could never mate with age. She's a bird in a gilded cage. Do we see a song like this as an echo of Louise Millard? What are the differences? And why is it that this particular image comes up so frequently in our literature and our art. This song has been recorded dozens of times. Except that there is perhaps truth in the fiction. Queer theory. If the Millards are part of the privileged class, just how much of their life has been sublimated? Are there some parts of the story that even Kate Chopin wouldn't say out loud? That she was virtually silenced about? We know that's true. She could not, for instance, allow Louise Millard to live, according to Emily Toth. And some of her stories were rejected, including this one for some time, because they were too aggressive, too progressive, too extreme. Perhaps then some of the ideas have been repressed. The description of Louise Millard suggests that she's young, fair, calm face, whose lines bespoke repression, and even a certain strength. Now, let's be clear, repression is most often and most likely meaning that she's been controlled by her husband. But it need not mean that. Madison Griffith writes that heteronormativity and conservatism have long been in an unwavering partnership. By this she means that not only does the privilege of wealth carry with it a sort of traditional conservative mannerism, but that to be heterosexual is a necessary part of that. Louise could not love her husband. She had heart trouble, especially where he was concerned and yet she had loved him sometimes. Often she had not. What did it matter? What could love, the unsolved mystery, count for? Louise isn't willing, even herself, to dig too deeply at the question of love and what it might mean. Do I think that Louise is homosexual or bisexual? Not necessarily. I just want to make space for us to see if it's possible. Deconstruction To start, I want to take us back to the notion of an hourglass structure. That's that structure where we began in the broad outside and we moved slowly into Louise and then back out again. What we have is a external limited omniscience of our narrator 
to a total omniscience of Louise. We get into her mind completely, and then we move back out again. Once we're in the middle with Louise, we have kind of a, a then therefore, a dream reality, which forever seems to fade in and out of definition. She doesn't seem to know what the thing is which comes out of her or in from the window, but whatever it is, it possesses her, and it's an idea that she has a hard time identifying. Now, we can call it freedom if we want, but we've already recognized that this freedom is a really difficult thing to put our fingers on. It doesn't seem to exist in the outside world. It's a word that she resists. It's a word that she has not wanted to accept into her own mind. And it is a word that she is feverish and unwitting about as she carries it downstairs into the outside world. It seems that in that case, this elusive goal of freedom, this thing that she wants, this idea which is romantic, it's revealed to be nothing much at all. A word that has no meaning in the outside world. It can't unfold itself into the world and exist as something important. It's just an idea that she carries emptily. As Winfried Fluck says, freedom as a vacuum cannot emerge into public space. If you conceive of an idea in its idealized form as something outside of context, it means nothing at all. And freedom has only certain limited meanings in the context of the world, not as she's conceived it, for sure. It's a word that has been contained in her and cannot be opened up or released. The container metaphor idea is working again. As long as the word is kept in the container in a vacuum, then it can be maintained as an, as an illusion, simply a strong signifier. Letting it loose into the world, it becomes appropriated by other forces. Dialogic criticism. But that's what happens, isn't it? Signifiers are let loose into the world. They interact. And the dialogue, the movement of ideas back and forth, the intersection between voices in the text is where the meaning occurs and keeps occurring. Now, there are a lot of voices in this text. Louise, for sure, has a lot to hmm, think for herself. The narrator has a role, too. The narrator is judging her in several of the sentences here. Feverish, unwitting, like a goddess. We have Chopin herself, as a writer trying to reconcile her story to the world. We have Richards, who doesn't have a direct voice, but is the messenger of the false death. We have her husband, also voiceless, and yet someone whose presence carries so much weight. It's the tension between these voices as they work to resolve these ideas, independence and love, isolation versus the compromise of freedom. It isn't that Chopin is writing a single essay that says, here's what I think. She says, here are the voices that are working on this. And you know who else is working on it? You and me. As we read this and think about it and engage it, Think about it from this view, too, from Kate Chopin, who is placing this story into a social dialogue. She's demanding that we engage it in a sort of feminist dialogics. Though, again, 
Chopin didn't consider herself a feminist and wasn't necessarily a part of that circle of thinkers, she certainly had many of the ideas and questions. How can her dialogue of a woman in captivity be anything but subversively feminist? And, of course, Chopin's own engagement with other writers, Howells, de Maupassant, some of her favorites. Will stories like this one engage other works, like Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem Sympathy, the work of Adrienne Rich when she writes Diving into the Wreck, And I'm fairly certain that writer Balak Khan, who wrote I Have No Way of Saying This Gently, was not thinking about Kate Chopin's news of death when he wrote his poem. But now that I've mentioned his name, you and I might seek out his poetry and see what dialogue we might take up. It isn't that meaning is to be found in a singular place and to say, yes, this is what the story is means. It's that the meaning is found every time we read it and every time we raise a new question. It is always changing. And the meaning for the editors of Vogue magazine was different for the meaning of me when I read this first in middle school than it is for me now as I've passed beyond my public school teaching years. Certainly different for you as you consider which of these voices speaks to you most powerfully. A Poetic Link Texts talk to each other. It's hard to be a writer and not have been influenced by those you have read. In fact, most writers will say specifically that they are influenced by those they've read. I might have mentioned that one of Chopin's favorite poets is Guy de Maupassant. He's written a lot of fiction and a lot of poetry, most famous for his fiction, but there's a poem that's mentioned in one of Chopin's notes that's a favorite of hers. It is Nuit de Neige. My guess is that Chopin read it in its original French, but I have a translation, and I'd like to offer it to you. In this case, though, I'm going to offer no comment on the poem. I leave it to you, my listeners, to decide what connections you can make between its temperament and the story of an hour. For this translation, I've chosen the poet from Mauritius, Amit Pamasur. Snowy Night The great plain is white, immobile, and speechless. Not a noise, not a sound. Every life seems dead. But one hears sometimes, like a doleful moan, some homeless dog which yells in the corner of a wood. No more songs in the air, under our feet, no more stubble. The winter has destroyed every bloom, Stripped trees erect on the horizon, their skeletons bleached like ghosts. The moon is large and pale and seems to hurry. It looks like she's cold in the vast, austere sky. She runs her gloomy look over the land and, seen everywhere, desert, 
she hastens to leave us. And on us fall the cold rays she shoots forth, fantastic glimmers that she sows while going. And the snow brightens far away, sinisterly, with strange reflections of the pale light. O terrible night for the small birds, a cold wind shudders and runs by the aisles, they, not having any more the umbrous haven of cradles, cannot sleep on their frozen legs. And the huge, naked trees that the black ice covers, they are here, all shaking, unprotected. With their worried eye, they are watching the snow, waiting until day for the night which does not come. Can we find meaning again? So what do we do with this dialogue? What do we do with all these experiences, all these questions? I've decided to identify this theoretical lens as the new sentiment because it hasn't really an agreed-upon name just yet. And rather than attempt to define it, I want to propose some ideas about this story that might help us resolve a little bit. What's the point of reading a story that's over 120 years old now? Does it still speak to us? It certainly does to me. Not just the clever irony of the end, or the more imaginative irony in the middle, not the tragedy of the center of it, but perhaps the idealizing that occurs. What does it mean to become self-empowered? As in Chopin's own words, to be in possession of self-assertion. At one level, it's a romantic delusion, isn't it? That this romantic idea, when it aims at self-empowerment, is culturally and historically still significant. If you and I, if we read this story and we start to think to ourselves, my gosh, I don't want to be like that. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be married to Brentley Millard, I'm saying, metaphorically, allegorically, when we find ourselves aiming for self-empowerment, what must we consider? It's not necessarily that we need to look at the story and say, oh, look how awful society is. Oh, look how significant this systemic containment is. This system of prevention of individual liberty. How awful it is. We can never be free. No, no, no. On the contrary. Every time we read this story, it renews us to think about how to achieve it. The tragedy of this story is not necessarily to say there is no hope. Quite the opposite. The cathartic idea, as Aristotle said, is to purge the tragedy from us and say, what is it about our own failings, our own errors, the harmartia of human existence? that is part of our history and will lead us up to some new understanding, something new I might do, something culturally radical. Now, I often leave the role of romance to Disney films, and I think they're almost stupidly idealistic. And yet, there is a role for them. Whether we read the happy ending or the tragic one, the message is still there. And the role of romantic ideals, the role of the idealism that whispers to us 
but dare not articulate itself in public, it gives us an actual, even political challenge. Certainly a personal one. It's about mapping intentionally our way of thinking onto the world that we wish it to be. Minority criticism. Well, we have to name it. We have just a few characters in this story, and we have some who are not here. Who is missing here? How did Louise Millard's privileged position come about? We don't know much about the exact setting, but most of Chopin's stories are from the American South. Louise Millard has the freedom to consider freedom. What does that say about those who cannot, especially around her, especially who helped produce her and her position? Now, I don't want to be really dark here, but it seems a bit ironic that the train accident that we run into is built upon minority labor. Perhaps we can only ride those tracks so far. Brentley Millard escapes by some weird quirk of fortune, but Louise Millard doesn't. Now, I don't want us to think that this is how Kate Chopin's stories always go. Would that we had time to consider some of Chopin's approaches to her local Creole people in more direct discussions of race, as in her very famous story, Desiree's Baby. Perhaps we will approach that discussion from another direction a bit later. Where is this coming from? This may seem like an odd sidebar, but I think it's important as we go forward with this discussion. There is a philosophy which makes itself known right around Chopin's time and certainly much more powerfully into the 20th century that will call itself existentialism. And one of the key ideas that Sartre suggested for it was the notion of a poor soi thinker, someone who thinks for themselves, in contrast to en soi thinking. Now, Sartre suggested that an en soi object was something like a, a rock or a dog or a tree, something that was a being of itself, not a being for itself. That idea of of itself simply means that it doesn't have a knowledge of its own existence, its ability to act upon the world. Poor soi, for ourselves, suggests that we have, as humans, our own ability to act and change the world. Later thinkers of existentialism would suggest that there are humans who are en soi, that they are unable to think for themselves, perhaps freely, and that the truly poor soi individual is one who can rise and choose of their own will and volition. Just as a quick question, which is Louise? Is she en soi? Does she lean in that direction because she has been for so long an object of her husband's existence? Remember the earlier editorial change in the story. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. Not there would be no one to live for. There would be no one to live for her. And that is exactly that idea. Louise is en soi. She lives the existence that someone else wants her to live. But for us to be fully realized humans, say the existentialists, we must be able to live for ourselves. I bring this up because it's going to help us understand our next chapter. 
Neo-colonialism. Those of us familiar with the terms post-colonialism may say, whoa, rein it in, wait a minute, this is a story about Americans in America. So how is this a story fit for post-colonial investigation? For those not familiar with it, post-colonialism raises questions about those who have been colonized in the world by generally American and European empires. But I think we might be able to use some questions from post-colonialism to inquire about this story. It might be able to enlighten us in some ways. I want to first draw upon some of the work and thinking of Alexander Welcome's work, Our Bodies for Ourselves, and ask these questions. What does it mean when one's body is no longer contingent upon the privileged oppressor? In other words, what does it mean when I'm no longer dependent upon the person who is controlling me from above? What does it mean for Louise when she is physically no longer dependent upon her husband? Surely it's a moment of transcendence. We move from a contingent relationship, a relationship of dependency, to a release from it, and then unfortunately to return to it. We can find in Chopin parallels to the colonial experience of relationships, and even perhaps some racial ones. What is a body permitted to do and not permitted to do? What is natural for it to do and not to do? For Louise, we might be able to ask the the questions this way. Is she permitted to begin her own business? Is she permitted to even leave the house? Is she permitted to move in society to destinations of her own choosing? Are any of those restrictions unnatural? Our bodies, our natural selves, are those that have demands upon them. Those demands might be to be loved, to act of our own volition, to move freely, to associate as we wish, to eat what we'd like, to sleep where we'd like. Remember that the notion of freedom, the it, the thing that Louise experiences, comes from outside, from the window, from nature. But of course, we've already determined that the freedom that we're talking about, the liberation, the moment of transcendence, is brief. We are naturally dependent upon others. It's a moment of mitzin. That's M-I-T-S-E-I-N. Mitzin. A transcendent moment during which bodies interact with each other, according to Simone de Beauvoir. So what we have is a really interesting idea of freedom and body. One is that freedom is impossible, but we could be colonized oppressed by a privileged oppressor, or we can act naturally, moving our bodies amongst others, or we might not have an oppressor, but have the choice about how we interact with others, what relationships we build with others. Now, that's not freedom. It is an ability to choose for ourselves what we do. That's a huge difference. The body has a very specific task to fully experience its existence, says Welcome. 
Now, in that same essay, Welcome brings up the idea of Franz Fanon, who had an implicit theory of race in itself and race for itself. Notice how this parallels the existentialist idea of en soi and pour soi. Fanon never denied human agency, the ability of humans to act for themselves. He did, however, recognize certain degrees of agency. Freedom wasn't complete. There were degrees of ability to move, degrees of ability to act for ourselves. With race in itself, racially subordinated individuals conformed to outside expectations of what others would have what society's mores and expectations would be. With race for itself, a racialized being's existence is self-determined. It is that idea, the self-determination, which is at stake for Louise and for all peoples who find themselves subjugated. One can never completely control one's existence. Bad experiences always emerge. All kinds of theorists make this clear. We find ourselves sometimes in positions which are really unfortunate, even though we have the privilege of freedom of movement. And sometimes we find pleasure and satisfaction. That's what it means to live our lives. It's not that those bodies are being constrained, but we find ourselves attached by responsibility. We find ourselves becoming a self in a group, geared toward the interests of the group. Our bodies, for ourselves, but attached by responsibility. There, there is an idea that I don't know if Chopin acknowledges in this story. What does it mean to be free and yet attached by responsibility? That's a degree of poor soi existence. A degree of being for ourselves. And in so thinking about it this way, a writer of 130-odd years ago might be understood through the developing world and the questions it's asking. What the others say. I'd like to take a moment and zoom in on a particular critical essay of Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour. It's called Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour, A Feminist Interpretation by Negan Karami and Ismail Zodi, both from Vali Esa University in Iran. What I appreciate about their essay to begin with is that it draws parallels between Kate Chopin's idea of feminism and Virginia Woolf's, who came some years after her. And, they, and it draws upon this idea that I mentioned earlier, that a woman's identity, or anyone's identity, works through their interactions with their husbands and society. In other words, freedom can't exist as a singular ideal. That is its problem. That somehow we have to be able to establish a sense of feminine freedom while still engaging in the society that is around us. Virginia Woolf seems to argue this concept. According to Karami and Zodi, Woolf excludes many women in the concept of freedom because, quote, the concept of freedom becomes problematic and then creates a tragic end in real life, especially, apparently, when uh, we have marriage in the picture. Instead, Woolf argues that her role isn't to hate any man because no man can hurt her. Not really, not spiritually. I need not flatter any man. He has nothing to give me. So she finds herself adopting a new attitude towards men. The liberation happens in the mind, because it certainly cannot happen elsewhere. Absolute freedom 
says Karamian Zodi, is not ideally perfect because it belongs to divinity. We take an ideal of any concept and we put it in the hands of divinity. For the human world, for Louise's world, it's a fantasy or dream, and therefore it lives in an unhealthy mind if she feels she can realize it there. That's why she, quote, loses control of her mind and does not think clearly and raises unrealistic ideas that it causes delusion and failure. In other words, what Louise does is attempt to take an idea which belongs to divinity and give it to humanity. Louise's freedom, they argue, is limited to isolation. Her freedom is based on her relationship to her dead husband, more than the conditions of her future freedom. This is a key notion, and I really appreciate how they frame this. Her whole concept of freedom emerged because of, based on, and building from the fact that her husband is dead. That is fundamentally the problem. A, it's still contingent or dependent upon the idea of her husband and on a certain condition of her husband. Instead, she might be thinking about the conditions of what her future freedom without husband, besides husband, despite husband, might look like. But she's not able to do that, or at least doesn't do so in the short story itself. The fundamental conflict these writers seem to see is between a woman who, on the one hand, should be allowed to have the opportunity to improve their, themselves, to liberate themselves from constraints, and on the other hand, their role as a relationship with their spouse, that they have a relationship, a dependency, a contingency, if you will, upon the man that they have married. And because women cannot, quote, think of freedom and other personal possessions for themselves as long as they are committed to the sanctity of marriage. So there's an interesting tension here for them between the liberation of women, which is a necessity at one level, and the necessity to the sanctity of marriage, which has been created as well. If there is a sanctity of marriage, there is a divine concept of respect and relationship that has to be upheld and a divine idea of freedom which must be upheld. How are both reconciled? Our writers don't make this clear. In this essay, they don't seem to raise an answer or solution, but then neither did Chopin. The failure of Louise Millard is in something close to what we said earlier, that she doesn't acknowledge that her notion of freedom doesn't operate in the outside world. What Karami and Zodi suggest is that that is a world which is tied to ritual and obligation and respect. How the words, the signifiers, operate in the world that we have created. It's an interesting essay from 2015, and I've linked to it on our website, and you can certainly take a look at it, along with the other essays and source material that I have referenced in this podcast. It's everywhere. Oh, Kate Chopin is popular. So popular. We have seen her work created into operas. We've seen it turned into films. There are short plays you can rent. 
In 2016, there was a short film based upon this story. There was also, in 1991, a student project for the Films for the Humanities called Five Stories of an Hour, Open Interpretations and Rewritings of This Work. I can't find that. If anyone knows how to get a hold of a copy of Five Stories of an Hour, I would love to see it, because that sounds exciting to me. But I did, unfortunately run into a copy of the 1984 film, Story of an Hour. It's about an hour long. And I've got to tell you, um, this is one you can definitely miss. I'll give you a quick rundown of why, and then I'll let you decide if you want to watch it on your own. I should say right away that Frances Conroy, as the lead, Louise Millard, is just as good an actress as the material allows. She's an extraordinary actress, and she did a good job with her role. The problem was in how you take a short story of two or three pages and make it 60 minutes long. Here are some other issues. The film equates the freedom Louise has lost to the lost cause of the South. It gives the line, free body and soul, to Bentley, her husband, as some Confederate sympathizer. The physical heart ailment dominates. She's The heart trouble is 100% physical. There's no sense in the film that her heart is otherwise troubled. She just wants to travel the world and her husband won't let her because of her heart trouble. There's a number of flashbacks for Louise, creepy father parallels. She is like mom is to dad, or rather, from dad's view, she's just like her mother, and that's a little creepy. Her dad leaves her. Her dad dies. Hugs from her dad and from her husband, Bentley, must be tighter and tighter. It's a little too sensuous to make us comfortable. And needless. She does truly love her husband. She does feel real grief and doting, etc. Bentley is, however, cruel to her at times as well. He definitely keeps her, and he keeps her through insults and condescension. She does like her freedom, but she calls it terribly free. She doesn't keep her freedom secret at all. In fact, she's very public about it. She shares her ambitions to travel with others before and after Bentley's death. She wants to travel. It's not the secret that's kept in her room at all. Instead of glossing over the death scene of Louise, the film dwells on its physicality. There is no joy that kills line at all. We just see her physically die in slow motion and everyone comes running to her. What this film is, is a study in how the craft of literature is compromised by film. Now, to be clear, I'm not against film adaptations of of works, but I am against film adaptations of works that change the spirit of the work. Tips for Teachers For our teachers, I have to say, this story is ideal for the classroom. It's brief, it's sparse, it's approachable, it's simple and compelling on the surface, but it can run far deeper very easily, as you might have been able to tell by now. It's open to interpretations, it's open to creative works with it. For instance, what would be a 21st century reinvention of the American girl, of this notion of captivity? What does it mean to be an American girl today? How are notions of captivity retained or even pushed back on? See, understanding literature is not about making meaning found in the text itself, but rather it is creative action. 
a transaction between the text and the reader that produces meaning. Remember we talked about that aesthetic reading earlier? But Rosenblatt said was not just an aesthetic reading. She said an aesthetic transaction. So making meaning in the text is a transaction between the text and the reader that produces meaning. It is this idea that I work with when I think about bringing stories and literature to the students. I don't have preset quizzes and preset lessons that tell them what the meaning is going to be. It's our context of discovery, what we want to know, and the context of justification, why it matters. That's where the meanings are going to come from. They're never, complex meanings are never going to come from the quizzes that we make and use year after year after year that strip context and reader from the text. Here are a couple of ideas and thoughts about how we could approach things. Suppose we consider the silence compelled on Louise, the publication history of Chopin. How are these parallels to the classroom discussion where gender is presumed neutral, objective, even male? Which is it when females remain silent? Look around your classrooms and ask yourself why the women are silent about a story like this. Silence is the perspective in which women accept the powerlessness they've experienced, believing they have nothing important to say. Blind obedience to authorities, however, is extremely important. If I don't misbehave, then I'm not hurting anything, and the teacher will approve of me. The perspective of received knowledge, where listening is a way of knowing when females halt their own voices in order to hear the truth that comes from others. That's quite an idea of silence. Or maybe silence in order to censor their beliefs and feelings so that they could avoid controversy, please the adults, reduce negative comments by males and teachers in the discussion. Whatever the reason, silence during classroom discussions will affect how the entire community interprets this text. And at some level, the silence during classroom discussions is the text. Louise can't bring herself to speak the words freedom out loud, even to her sister, even in her own house. And if our girls won't participate in the discussion, what does that mean? Another way to look at this is to think about this as in terms of gender discussion. We could focus, for instance, on the physical body, as I talked about in the postcolonial section. Think about how bodies, and again, female bodies, but student bodies, physicality, we are constantly surveilling, policing. There's constant violence on bodies in the broadest terms of it. Through reading the way they are inscribed by class, race, gender, it occurs in texts, it occurs in society, it occurs in our schools. When students encounter a teacher enclosed in a gendered, racialized, classed body. His or her very presence in the classroom is, is in effect, another text to be read. Those bodied texts impact the interpretive community. When we interrogate our bodies and how they are being surveyed, a deeper understanding of the text and of those engaged in the meaning-making could occur. This story is about us. This story is about what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, what we're allowed to admit to ourselves and not allowed to admit to ourselves in these enclosed spaces. 
It's not enough that we look at the, the story on its own. We look at it in terms of our looking at it. What are we permitted to do in the space that we're talking about the story? Another way to look at this is to give multiple theories or readings to respond to. Sound familiar? I've offered a number of related works that could pair with this story very well, and that might give us a dialogue of literature to talk about bodies, oppression, freedom to talk, freedom as a concept. These are all available, and there'll be some supplemental resources on the Waywards website as well. Be sure to check them out. T-O-K of it. For my theory of knowledge students, the map is not the territory. This is a story of misreadings. What is the territory here? What do we know about it? What is the extensional real world? How do we define it? Socially? Politically? Scientifically? Or is Louise's emotional way of knowing valuable? What happens when we discount someone's emotional desire to express themselves and I apart from the world? Do we dare? And by oppressing or creating silences in the spaces of the world, do we silence a certain map that may allow us to see the world differently? To what extent is knowledge a mapping of intentionality? Are all maps, to some degree, intentional in their productivity, in their production? Is there a map that you might describe as purely objective? Aren't all maps a failure to align the external and internal worlds? When we look at this story as an example of how different people see or map the world, how some ways of knowing are permitted and valued and some are not, what questions must we ask? Hey, check this out. There are a number of amazing works that speak to some of the same ideas I brought up in this short story. Here are a few that you might want to look at. By Kate Chopin herself, Ripe Figs. A very, very short work, but it will give you a very different idea of how we measure time, meaning, in ourselves. For a structural fun, take a look at the Twilight Zone episode, Time Enough at Last. It's actually a short story by Lynn Venable. John Young's Our Deportment, or the Manners, Conduct, and Dress of a Refined Society. Guy de Maupassant's short story, The Jewelry. Excellent parallels to this uh, particular short story. Susan Glassbell's Trifles, and also A Jury of Her Peers. Mary Wilkins's A New England Nun. Judy Brady's I Want a Wife. An amazing, sarcastic uh, approach to this uh, short story. Each of these will inspire us to see the story in a new way, and hopefully each of these will create a new dialogue for us to have.
New Historicism. This is a theory that's going to appear in larger ways later on in this season and other ones. But for now, I want to go back to the history of Kate Chopin and just mention these important points. There's always the potential that a short story or poem or work of art is reflective of the author's own life. Consider one of the themes of this work, the potential for us to author our own lives. And then setting that authorship aside upon discovery of our husbands still living. How much of what we've talked about today did Chopin understand of this question? Was her framing, her mapping of her own world, limiting her potential to escape a binary, freedom versus captivity? Do her other works, The Awakening, for instance, answer the question? We must be careful what we make of her. She wrote, Women forever will whine and cry, and men forever must listen and sigh. Chopin is not a liberator, but what we do say now of her is an interpretation as well. Literary Misillusions there's one interesting allusion that goes on in the short story, and I'd really love to draw attention to it. Chopin writes that Louise carries herself like a goddess of victory. Now, I know that the casual reader will likely look at that and say, oh, yeah, you know, she's winning. You know, that's, she's, she's like a goddess in charge, a, a person who wins, a person of independence, of power. But I'd like to point out a couple of things about the victory reference, which are kind of intriguing. First, victory is another name for the goddess Nike. We know that. And uh, at one point was merged later in Greek society with the goddess Athena. Both were virgins. And the word virgin originally meant someone independent of man. It wasn't a sexual idea. It had nothing to do with purity and chastity per se. It simply meant someone who walked on her own independently. So this is not a reference to say Louise wins. This is a reference to say she's coming down the stairs in a feverish triumph, like a goddess of victory, like someone who has found independence from the world of men. Now, Kay Chopin was raised Roman Catholic. She was top of her class in a school of nuns. She was a skeptic and a debutante, for sure, but there was no reason for her not to know this. And that's even hardly the point. The fact is, the illusion is there, that she sees the independence of herself from the patriarchal society. But this is a feverish triumph. She is unwittingly carrying herself down the stairs like a goddess of victory. This notion, this harmartia, this frailty and error that she makes is that women could ever be independent from men. So if we didn't see it in the rest of the text, we can definitely see it in this illusion, this reference that so many of us misread and misunderstand. The idea that she carries is monstrous. I will say also that victory in Greek mythology is not moral, is not good, 
it is a creature akin to force and strength. So there's nothing about winning or independence which makes it virtuous. Those are not values that are attached to victory. Make of that what you will. A personal reflection. I'm uh, wandering out in a nature preserve here and along a trail which is fairly well marked. I know it fairly well. So far, the walk has been in safe territory. But I do see around me here and there a, kind of a fork along the way. Small trail leads back into some houses over there a ways off. Another seems to be just a trail for animals. Deer, maybe. These trails wind for miles. Others can wind for days, years. I might never learn them all, map them all, connect them all. Who could, so long as we keep writing and talking, reading? After all of this, you are more than entitled to ask me what I think about Kate Chopin's story, why I chose it, what we should do with it, Certainly a small, tight, open story, and it was an easy choice for me to launch the podcast, our first episode ever. And it lends itself to a number of themes and approaches to reading that I know we'll revisit with some frequency and significance this season and beyond it. There are ideas I'm drawn to. What is the nature of captivity and personal power? How significant is the difference between these in terms of physicality? Our bodies, perhaps, or of psychology, intelligence, of economics, of class. What is it that we're trapped by? How are we dependent upon others as wardens or as liberators? How do we navigate the changing conceptions of freedom while we work in a culture of others? If freedom isn't an absolute then our alienation, you know, otherness, a suspension of intelligent thought? How do these questions work on me as an educator? In a classroom with students, amidst screams of patriotism during various political demonstrations, with William Wallace and Braveheart, is there a freedom which is not freedom from all of this requires a negotiation between false binaries, false either-or propositions, doesn't it? There is neither complete freedom nor complete surrender to power. How do we do it? Perhaps some other writers offer some clues. What Kate Chopin has done is start us on a set of paths, and we could take any number of them. I might turn right while you turn left every now and then. But I imagine our paths will often cross, nonetheless. This is our first episode, but as we wander, more and more connections will emerge. Follow the path as we create it. The episodes are numbered, after all. Or as themes and ideas emerge, any way you wish. But here's what you can imagine. We have a lot more to explore in terms of these theories, these ways of reading we need to look more at irony, at aesthetic and close reading, at the authority of a text, 
of tragedy and of hamartia. But we have some far-reaching texts ahead of us, some fairly popular and some I know every listener will be unfamiliar with. Right around the corner is a short medieval poem called Fowls in the Frith that is already available on our website. Down the trails of peace are essays by Montaigne, short stories by Chimamanda Adichie and Ursula K. Le Guin, poetry by Andrew Marvel and Desiree Bailey, and some ancient tales from cultures long ago. Oh, and some truly unexpected pieces. This isn't a podcast about classic Western literature alone. Oh, no. It can't be. Asking the classics to walk freely down the stairs ignores a literal world of literature with whom they must interact, to whom they have a responsibility, even an accountability. For those looking, you'll find that our website has longer episodes. I've cut a number of chapters from this version. Resources for teachers and students, and a number of other trails that wander out of the realm of podcasts completely. Explore it. And if you feel compelled, subscribe or join the new community. Your support will help bring our discussion on reading to more people. Find us at waywordsstudio.com. That's waywordsstudio with two S's in the middle. Wander with us and grow with us. See you next time. Music for the Waywards podcast is by Randon Miles. Chapter headings by Natalie Harrison and Sarah Skaleski. The Waywards podcast is a production of Waywards Studios. Find us at waywardsstudios.com.